0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I said this in the first service, but I'm going to say it again. Did we just have summer? <laughs> like, that was a wonderful little warm spell, and here we are back to the cold. So, <laughs> anyway, uh, today we are going to continue our uh, studying the letter of 1 John. And as Pastor Dave has been sharing with us over the past few weeks, um, there's a purpose that John wrote this letter to this church. And so we need to discover what this purpose is and understand it as we try to uh, understand what John's trying to say in this. So our study of of this letter, pardon me, our study of this letter is going to be influenced by how John was writing and what he was doing here. So several several years ago, uh, there was this, uh, I feel like I'm really loud right now, Am I really loud, you guys? Nobody's shaking their heads. I just feel, I hear an echo. I feel very, very loud. Anyway, it's just me then. Anyway, several years ago, there was a company uh, uh, called Berlitz. And this company had a commercial that advertised if you wanted to learn a new language. And some of you probably saw this commercial. But the commercial goes like this, okay? There was this young... German Coast Guard radio operator. And it's like his first day on the job. And so he, he the scene starts with this, this young German Coast Guard operator, and he's sitting down and at his post, and his manager leaves. And no sooner does his manager leave the room than this distressed call, distress call comes over the radio, and you hear this voice saying, Mayday, Mayday, we are sinking. We are sinking. And this young German Coast Guard operator very apprehensively leans forward and presses the button on his mic and he says, uh, Hello, this is the German Coast Guard. That's as good as the accent's going to get today, by the way, guys. It doesn't get any better. But I have to do the accent. It's, it has to be. So anyway, so, so he said, This is the German Coast Guard. And they answer back, Mayday, Mayday, we are sinking, we are sinking. And the, the Coast Guard operator responds back, uh, What? What? are you sinking about? <laughs> and immediately the screen goes black and it says, improve your English with burlitz. <laughs> and so this, this kind of funny commercial reminds us that context is important because if that guy had known that they were in the middle of the ocean and on a boat, and he probably would have been able to decipher that they were sinking and he wouldn't have misunderstood what was going on there. So context for us is important. And... Um, It's important because we don't want something to get lost in translation like in the example I just gave. And when we're studying a culture and passages of scripture that are thousands of years old it's important that we understand what was going on there because those things are no longer here so we need to understand the context so in first john the apostle is writing to the church that has gone through a major church split and not over something silly like you know the color of the frescoes that they put on the wall no the the church had split over some significant doctrinal issues and there was a group of people that, who left the church that were called cessationists because they ceased to belong to that church anymore. And this group of people was arguing that Jesus was not the Christ. And they were denying that he had risen from the dead. And there was even, uh, some of these people even thought as they left the church that God had given them specific information and and divine wisdom and knowledge about things that, that he didn't let everybody else know. And so they left the church in this. But more or less, all of these reasons for why they left the church were influenced by the way that their culture was affecting what they believed. They had allowed the secular culture of the day to start mixing with their beliefs about Jesus. And so we see this in their understanding of the afterlife and the spiritual world and, and in the mythology. And that was all creeping in. And it allowed that to infect the way that they thought about Jesus. Now we can judge them sitting in our seat today. We can look at that. We can judge them and go, how could they allow culture to influence the things of God? But we can fall prey to this too, I think. And so uh, in this culture, the one that we're in right now, we have individual rights and freedoms. That is something we all grew up with. There's, there's nobody in here that's so old that they don't remember a time when that wasn't a thing here in Canada. And so we have individual rights and freedoms, but that's not the case for everybody in the world. Not everybody lives the way that we live here. And that certainly isn't the case as we look back at history, you know, that, that there was this individuality and these rights and freedoms granted to citizens, that, has not the, that is not the case. So when we look at something like the, the, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, in that he rules over everything and is in control of everything, when we look at that doctrine, we see it differently in this culture than other people in the world might view it, and certainly differently than those people from the past would view it. So this doesn't sit too well with us when we hear things like, especially our culture, maybe not people sitting in this room, but our culture, when we look at that and we go, well, I don't like the idea that maybe God would be able to say, you know, have a say over everything in my life. Because if God is in control of everything, then he might affect the way I want to do something. And that would kind of infringe on my individual rights and freedom. So for us in our culture, it's, it's probably a more culturally pleasing message to say something like, we have equal rights with God you know he gets to do some things and we get to do some things and at the end of the day you know as long as we're not getting into each other's business too much that you know that's okay that's a good thing that would be a culturally acceptable message that we could preach today but does that make God God no not at all well, that strips all the power out of who God is and we look at that doctrine that way so we don't want to handcuff God by looking at it that way. And you might be looking at me going, well, Joel, I don't think there's too many people who would say that we have equal rights with God, even outside of these walls. Well, let me press this just one step further for you. Most of us want to have the freedom to accept or reject God. That is something that we say, yep, that, we wouldn't want that forced upon us. We wouldn't want that forced upon anyone else that we know. But here's a question. Do you think that God should have the right to accept or reject you? Because it's interesting because we don't really like the idea that Jesus would be able to reject us or God would be able to reject us. We like the idea of being able to reject him though. And if we reject God, then it's kind of like, well, that's just our choice. Right? That's how we think in our cultural reference. That's our choice. We can reject God. But, but when God rejects us, he's cruel. How could the God of the universe who knows everything and whatever, how could he reject us? That Type of thinking is our culture influencing how we think and our doctrine. Now we're not going to dive into this discussion any further today. I just wanted to bring it up to you as an example of how culture can affect how we think. But, but this is a discussion that we should talk about at some point. And, and there, are, there are ways that we can get to an answer on that. But we're not going to do it today. But if you have any questions about it, just reach out to Dave. He would love to answer those questions for you. <laughs> The cessationists that had left the church had exchanged the truth of God for the cultural influences of their day. And so they, in doing this, had landed themselves at odds with God. And, and, and he they were no longer in the church and believed the things of him. But the, the people that John are, is writing to in this passage of scripture, uh, they had seen now, because of this, the cultural influence of influences of the day erode the gospel message. And so John, a man who had physically walked with Jesus, John had heard the messages from Jesus's lips, he had seen him up on the cross and watched his friend die and seen his lifeless body, which would I'm sure been incredibly traumatic, being peeled off of a cross. He had seen this with his own eyes. But three days later, John also saw Jesus rise from the dead. And he saw him and spoke to him. This is the guy who is writing this letter these people. And so when he writes to this church, he's writing with some some authority on this matter. And he's encouraging them to stay strong because he knows what they're going through. And he knows that the cultural influences aren't worth bowing down to and giving into because he's seen that this is the true message the argument that the people who left the church were giving had caused this group of believers who had so far remained strong to doubt if they actually had the right message. You know, is what we believe right, John? Did we get it wrong? And I think, I think we can all find ourselves there. God, do, do we have this right? Am I just believing falsehood? Or like, are you really real? And so, this passage today that we're gonna look at, this passage was written for us just as much as it was written for them. And so, we're gonna pick it up in John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. And this passage of scripture is gonna answer for us the question that they had and the question that we have Can I have assurance that what I believe is correct? Outside of waiting until I die or until Jesus returns and says, I pick you. Is there any way that I can know that what I believe, that this, this Jesus thing, this Christian religion, is there any way that I can know for certain that what I believe is right and that all the others got it wrong? And the, in this incredibly encouraging passage of scripture that we're going to look at today that John, John's going to answer that question for us. So let's pick it up in verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they do not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that they never really belonged to us. He's talking here about the people who left, and he's saying, you know, the fact that they left showed that they actually never really believed the gospel message. They didn't allow it to take root in their lives, because if they had allowed it to take root in their lives, and if they had believed the truth, then they never would have left in the first place. And John also sees that the the misguided beliefs of this group of people has shown us that we are living in the last hour. And as John writes this letter, he's not saying to these people literally like, hey, you know what? It's 60 minutes and this is all over with. That's, that's not what John's saying here. He's talking figuratively about the fact that we are living in the last time period in history before Jesus returns and gathers some people, his people to himself. You know, there were other time periods in history and other things that happened as, as the, the Bible developed and went along, but John's saying, hey, look, the, the arrival of these antichrists along the scene, the, that's it. Like, like, Jesus came as a suffering servant the first time, but, but this is evidence that when he returns, he's not coming humble. He's coming in power, and he's going to gather us to himself at that moment. It's kind of like, for John, this is kind of like the landmark that you drive by on the highway that kind of lets you know that, you know, oh, we're getting close to home. When you're coming in from Calgary on the highway, when you're getting close to Edmonton, you pass that way station on the left-hand side of the road, just outside of Leduc, right? When you pass that, you know we're almost there. And so for John, he's, he's encouraging the church here, saying, this is the sign. You know, y- y- you're getting close here. And because we see the spirit of the Antichrist, you know the time is almost here. These antichrists are basically Satan's tools to combat the work of Jesus in the world. And the Bible shares with us that in the end times, there's going to be this one uh, obvious antichrist, this one major antichrist that will come along. And, And he's going to accept glory and worship unto himself. But for the time being, and for the moment, we see the spirit of the antichrist displayed in those who oppose Jesus. This was a fairly new weapon in Satan's arsenal uh, in John's day. But in our day, this type of opposition to Christ has been around for a long time. Uh, You know, there are full-fledged religions in place right now that were not around before Jesus came on the scene. Religions that would, would say, well, yeah, we believe that there was a Jesus, but they deny his deity. They say that he didn't rise from the grave. So they can they can actually acknowledge Jesus life but they can deny all of that other stuff and this is evidence to us that there are spiritual forces at work guiding the world behind the scenes trying to trying to, and displaying the spirit of the antichrist counteracting the message of Jesus in the world because Satan's purpose with these antichrists is to lead as many people away from the truth as he can so John is saying to the church don't be discouraged when you see this kind of stuff happening be encouraged The fact that you can actually recognize that what they're saying is probably false is a sign that you have the truth within you. We all need this kind of encouragement in our life, you know, in in everything that we do, but but especially when it comes to spiritual matters and when our eternity is in view. I remember before Michelle and I, my wife Michelle, uh, uh, got married, I was trying to decide, you know, if this was the right girl for me, and discern God's will in that, Lord, is this the girl that I should marry? And uh, there's a lot on the line with that, if I should date her or not, because our families were friends. She went to the church that I went to and uh, her sister, uh, my sister and her were friends and we went to the same school. So there was a lot of, a lot of things that we had together. And so I knew that if I was going to date this girl, like it was going to be the last girl that I ever dated because there was going to be problems if I got this wrong, right? And so I prayed and I prayed and I prayed if this was going to be the girl for me. And I wasn't the best at discerning God's will for me back then. And I, I'm not great at it now, but I've learned a few things along the way. And so I decided after praying for an entire year and not feeling like I had an answer, if this was the right girl for me, I decided I was going to fleece the Lord. And a fleece is essentially uh, a sign that we ask from God that will reveal if, if uh, what his will is or not. And it's, it comes in Judges chapter 6 where we see Gideon fleece the Lord. And I'm not recommending that everybody do this. Don't judge me for doing it. But it's what I chose to do. I was in this for a year already, okay? So anyway, I fleece the Lord. And here's my fleece. Uh, If Michelle would call me before a certain time, noon, on a specific day, if she did that, then I would know that that was God's will that I would marry that woman. Okay, just keep the judgment on me, Joel. That's weak. It's not as weak as you think, Joel. There's some layers to this. Me and Michelle weren't the kind of friends that hung out all the time and called each other, okay? So she called my sister, but she wouldn't call me necessarily. And to add another layer to that, I was, I was on holidays at my buddy's house in Kelowna, staying at his grandma's house, okay? And Michelle had caught a ride with us down there, and we dropped her off at her grandparents' place in West Bank. But... Um, But she, you know, didn't have any reason to necessarily call me, and we weren't at our homes. And this was also in an era where cell phones weren't a big deal. Like, not everybody had one. And so she would have had to have called his grandmother's house while I'm on vacation and asked to speak with me. Okay, so it's not quite as, you know, easy as I made it sound, right? You know, like, God, if I see the sun today, she'll be my wife, right? It's not like that. (laughs) Anyway... Uh, (laughs) So uh, the day arrived uh, that I had prayed about and I went out onto the lawn that morning and I was sitting there reading my Bible because I was a good Christian man. I had a lot to be praying about that morning. So I was sitting on the lawn reading my Bible and my buddy's mom comes out the door and she's like, Joel, the phone's for you. And I'm like, no way, right? My prayers have been answered. And so, (laughs) so I head into the house and I pick up the phone and I'm like, hello? And she's like, hey, Joel, it's Michelle. And I'm like, all right. And she's like, I don't know if I was supposed to call you today or what. And I'm thinking in the back of my head, yeah, you were. You know, and, and, and in that moment, I was like, that is the confirmation. Michelle had no idea what she was in for. She was just calling me because she had this inkling to call me. <laughs> but it was Lord. Um, anyway, the rest is history. It wasn't long after that that I asked her out to be my girlfriend. Within a year or under a year, we were married. And next month, we celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary. So, hey, we think we got that right. <laughs> Now, I'm not advocating that you run out and you do this kind of thing all the time. You know, we need to learn how to hear God's voice in the normal moments of life, that quiet whisper. Um, Because you don't want to make a mistake like Michelle did with that (laughs) fleece, right? But it's encouraging when we get these these things in life that encourage us on the right path and we can we can have faith that we're doing the right thing and especially when it comes to spiritual matters. And this leads us to our, our next section here in the scriptures, verses twenty through twenty-three. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. A true believer in Christ has been anointed by God, and that anointing places the truth upon us, and we have that within us. In Exodus uh, chapter 30, verses 22 through 33, God gives instructions to the Israelites about how to anoint things, things that will be in his presence. And there's this specific recipe and formula for making this anointing oil because they were all, because the things that were anointed to be in God's presence were like the priests and the items that went in the tent of meeting. And God's, God's saying like, these are the things that I will agree to have anointing. And he says in verse 32, he says this, do not pour it on anyone else's body and do not make any other oil using the same formula. It is sacred and you are to consider it sacred. Whoever makes perfume like it and puts it on anyone other than a priest must be cut off from their people. It was important that no one else wore the scent of God because people needed to know that that scent and that anointing meant that those things were sacred. Now, why would God do that? Why would God make this, this ritual You know, uh, where we would have to follow and do this thing? Like, Why did he do that with the people that only these things that have been anointed could be in his presence? And I think often we see, especially in Exodus, God is painting a picture for us with these rituals about something that he wants us to know about him. He wants us to know that only those things that have been specifically anointed can be near him. Not anything, not just the general, not just the mundane can be in God's presence. It's only specific things that have been anointed. And if you are a Christ follower, God has placed his anointing upon you. And you are going to be welcomed into his presence because that anointing is upon you. This isn't for everyone. Not everybody gets anointed. It is only for those whom Jesus had anointed. There's no other way to be in God's presence. And that ritual shows us that. There was no other way to be anointed by God under this specific thing. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, there's no other way to be anointed by God to be in his presence other than through this specific formula, which is Jesus Christ Isn't that amazing, the symmetry that we see between the Old Testament rituals and the the stuff of Jesus when he comes on the scene in the New Testament? Here in our passage today, John is confirming for this church, you have been anointed by God, and you possess the truth. Those people that left, they don't have it. They didn't have the anointing, so they don't get and possess the truth. And he says this to them. He says, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. John is directly confronting the blasphemous arguments of the cessationists here. You know, they didn't necessarily deny that Jesus was real but they they denied that he rose from the dead and they denied that he was the Christ the holy one of God they didn't accept his lordship into the equation and as a result they were not given the anointing we read this in Romans 10 verse 9 if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead that you will be saved there are three elements that we can see in this verse first you need to declare with your mouth that Jesus is lord This isn't just lip service. You don't get to just say, oh yeah, Jesus is Lord, I get to go to heaven. That's not how it works. It needs to come from a deeper understanding that you want your life to be ruled by God. You understand that you could keep living your life the way you want to and where that could possibly lead, but you also understand what Jesus is offering on the other side and you're going, I'm cool with giving that up and accepting whatever you have for me on this side because I know no matter what I do on this side, What you have is so much better than that. The second element is believing fully in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Well, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then this this is just a great story. But everything that we read and everything that Jesus said in the scriptures, they're meaningless. For the believer, Jesus must have risen from the dead because if Jesus actually rose from the dead and you believe that in your heart, then everything he said about himself and your faith and your hope spring to life because what he said was true. And the third element that we see here is if you believe that, if you believe all of that, then you will be saved and you receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon you. So the cessationists were very public in their denial of Jesus' lordship and his resurrection. You know, they were very outward in their profession that, hey, he wasn't the Christ and we don't believe he is lord of our lives and all that kind of stuff. Uh, But there is a way, I think, of denying Jesus and and not acknowledging him and not receiving, or pardon me, uh, which keeps us from receiving God's anointing. And we can do this quietly as well. It doesn't just have to be outward and overt. You know, for me, I can, in the summertime, I can stand on the shore at the lake, and I can look out over the lake, and I can see boats floating in the water. And I can acknowledge wholeheartedly that those boats are floating. And I can even tell you what kind of boat that is. I can tell you all about it. Maybe I maybe even know a lot about boats, and I can tell you what kind of motors in it, what color it is. I can tell you, hey, oh, those are my friends in that boat. I have a relationship with those guys. But there's a difference between me being able to tell you all about boats and agreeing with you that that boat floats and actually getting into that boat and putting my life in it. You know, relying on the integrity of that boat to keep me alive. The Bible tells us that even the demons believe in Jesus and they shudder in James chapter 2 verses 19 and the demons aren't going to be in God's eternal in Jesus and the Father's eternal presence. Belief needs to run deeper than lip service. Jesus must must be Lord of our lives, and his resurrection cannot just be a nice thought for us. It actually has to mean something, because it's the foundation of our faith and our hope. Because if the resurrection didn't happen, then the promises of Jesus aren't true. But if it did happen, then everything he said is true, right? So we need to believe in both of that, or in all of that. So... Is there any confirmation then that we can have that we have that anointing upon us? Is there any way that we can have confirmation that the the things that we believe have taken root in our hearts and we're not going to get pulled off track at some moment when when tough times start? I mean, we we hear about these fires. I mean, that is a life-disrupting event. Is there any way that that's not going to pull me off course because I lost my house or something went wrong there? Well, in verse 24 through 27, we discover the answer to this as we study it. Let's read it together. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about about those who have led you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. So, how does this passage give us assurance of our anointing? Well, we got to look back to Acts chapter 2. Because in Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit descending upon a group of believers. And John would have been here when this happened. John would have received the Holy Spirit at this time. It was this amazing moment when the Holy Spirit was in the air, and there was these tongues of fire that descended on the people. And there was this loud noise, the sound of a violent wind blowing. And in that moment, the people, all the believers, were able to speak in different languages from other nations. And as this was happening, this this event was going on, there were people from all over the world that had gathered there for Pentecost. And they'd come from different nations, and they're hearing these people speak in languages that they understand. And they're going, how can I understand what that Jew is saying? They're speaking my language. And so they gathered around, and as they gathered around, Peter sees what's going on. And he stands up and he addresses the crowd. And he quotes a prophecy from the Old Testament book of Joel. And he says to the crowd, he says this. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Peter's saying to that whole crowd, he's saying, do you realize what's going on right now? Prophecy is being fulfilled in our midst. Those stories are true. This is the Holy Spirit as the scripture says, descending upon us. And if that's the Holy Spirit coming upon us, you know what that means? That means that Jesus did rise from the dead like we saw and like we've seen and like we've been professing to you. And it means that everything about himself that he told us is true. This is the context that John is writing from. It is this post-Pentecost setting. So as he writes you know, about God's anointing and about remaining in the Father and remaining in the Son in verses 24 through 27. He isn't simply writing about a drop of oil that's placed upon these people. He's writing about the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and that anointing remains on them, and he can tell it remains on them because of how they have been taught and how they're they're able to discern the truth, and they've remained with him. It's the Holy Spirit within us that maintains the accuracy of the gospel message in our lives. And it is the Holy Spirit within us that keeps us connected with the Father and the Son. And it will be the Holy Spirit whose work that we see working within us that will confirm for us that we have found the truth and that we don't just have a religion in the long line of other religions. We have actually found the truth. Uh, When Michelle and I bought our first car, uh, we we were proud of it. It was an Acura. RSX type S. It was silver. It had, you know, leather seats in it. It was brand new because we were young and foolish. And uh, anyway, when we bought this car, we had to put a deposit on it. You don't get to just grab the car and go home when it's brand new. You got to like put the deposit down and you got to put the 3M coating and all that stuff on it, you know, all the extras. And so we put this deposit down and that deposit was the guarantee for us that that car belonged to us. We knew that that was ours, that they put our name on it. But without that deposit, that car could have belonged to anybody at any time. When we are true believers, we are given the deposit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And and he is the guarantee of the relationship that we have with the Father and Son. It's not the whole thing. It's not the whole experience of that relationship. It's only the deposit. But it's the deposit. That Spirit is the confirmation of the deposit of the relationship that we're going to have in all of its fullness in the future. So the question that I have for you is, do you have that anointing? Do you have that deposit? Do you see the Holy Spirit at work in your life? In Acts, Peter instructs the onlookers in Jerusalem, the people who were looking in from the outside and they were like, I see there's something different about that person and I don't have that. And he instructs these people and he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus. Well, if you are here today and you feel like God has been calling upon your heart because you recognize that, that you maybe don't have that anointing and maybe that Holy Spirit, that that isn't in you, then you need to follow what, John is, or what Peter is saying here to repent and be baptized. This will mean a sincere acknowledgement on your part That you want Jesus to be Lord of your life. That he is leading and guiding you. You recognize that the path you're going on is one that you could choose, but you also recognize that it's not going to lead you anywhere close to the path that Jesus could take you on and what he is offering. It's also going to mean that you have a solid belief that, that Jesus was raised from the dead. Because in believing that Jesus raised from the dead, you know that you have a living hope, one that is rooted in truth. It's not false, it's fake. Because Jesus came alive. And that means that everything he said was true. And it means that that the Holy Spirit then, as we're told, will be poured out upon you as you confess this to the Lord. Uh, For those of us who have already done this, we have the Holy Spirit upon us now. With joy, we need to understand that we can have confidence that the things that he has promised are real and true. And we possess the truth. Every time you see the Holy Spirit at work in your heart and in your life, that is your confirmation that you got it right. If you want to grow in your faith and feel confident as a believer, you you just need to chase after the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. The more that you can learn to hear his gentle whisper in your heart, and the more that you submit in obedience to his calling and leading, the more that you can have confidence in your faith that what you believe is true and that, that you own or that you have possessed that truth and that you've got it right for me I know that my most fruitful times, the times that I feel the most uh, confident and confirmed in my faith is when I'm operating within my spiritual gifts uh, times when I'm up here speaking to you, uh, I, I've confessed to others that preaching is an incredibly draining experience, it's a lot of work and I don't like doing it <laughs> but I also know that these are the moments that I feel the closest to God and I feel his spirit at at work within me because when I'm going over this message it's just words on a page but when I speak it and I preach it as God has asked me to do those words come alive and they make a difference in my life and in your life and that's an amazing thing for me to experience and so that's a confirmation for me when I have that work of the Holy Spirit going on but it's not just that it's also in my quiet moments as I'm reading my Bible and journaling and that one's actually a hard one for me too, because I don't like reading. It doesn't come naturally to me. I, I I don't I don't. It's in one ear and out the other. I'm an audiobooker. I love to audiobook, but reading, ugh, doesn't work for me. But I have learned the discipline of reading my Bible as if I'm having a conversation with God. You know, not simply having an information download where it's like I read something and it's like, yeah, that's really great and whatever. No, it's it's not a one-way street. It's a two-way street between me and God. We're having a conversation where I read something and I ask him a question about it and I wait for him to answer. And then when he answers, I respond and we talk and we go back and forth and I write this stuff down as he talks to me. This practice has made my times with God come to life. And they've been a confirming moment for me as I hear the Holy Spirit on a regular basis filling and confirming that what I believe is true and it's real. It's not just some other religion. I would like to call the worship team up here. Now, but what is it for you? Where do you get your confirmations from? If you're not sure, I'm happy to talk to you about this. Email me. If there's too many of us, we'll just have a Zoom class and we'll all share our ideas together. But I'm happy to chat with you about how I connect with the Holy Spirit. But if you see somebody who you think is filled with the Holy Spirit and you've watched them and you're like, I got to know what that person does, reach out to them. Find out what they're doing and see if you can emulate that in your own life. My point is this, learn where you get the greatest confirmation of the Holy Spirit and of your anointing in your life and then spend time there often. Don't accept anything less than the fruitfulness of, that your heart desires. God, God doesn't just leave us meandering in this life, wondering, have we got it right? Is this the right faith? Like, what's going on? He doesn't do that. A Christian life should be marked by the confidence that comes when we rely on the Holy Spirit. Live with the fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life. Anything less is selling this anointing that you've received upon you short and obscuring the truth which you're meant to live in. So go out this week and live by the power of the Holy Spirit because because he is confirming the truth within your hearts as you do. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the moments where we get to engage with your Holy Spirit because they are our confirmation. Lord, we all need this. Life crowds out these moments from our minds. So please give us these moments of confirmation often. Allow us to see your spirit at work in our lives. Draw us to you, God, so that we can see and be a part of this often and be in communication and in conversation and in relationship with with you. And so we pray that you would be so gracious as to confirm in us this week by the power of your Holy Spirit that we have your anointing upon us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.